Hi, this is Alton Liu. Just a warning, we talk about 9-11 a lot in this episode. I'm going to show my age here, but I was in elementary school during 9-11, and my teacher actually turned the TV on and watched for a few minutes with all of us in class. And I remember so clearly the image of the smoking towers and the explosion. We just watched a bunch of second graders and our teacher until he came to his senses and turned it off. I can't say that I remember much about what was happening at the time. Uh, for me, I just remember walking into the living room with my backpack on, ready to go to school, and then seeing my grandparents and my mom huddled around the TV as we watched news coverage of the attack. I just saw a tower that was smoking, and then I got really worried about my uncle, who I thought was supposed to be in New York. And... When I got to school, all I remember was that the whole student body walked outside to the flagpole. And we were just really quiet for a long time. Maybe we sang a song, or we recited the pledge. President Bush was also in an elementary school at the time. And a lot of people know this story. He was reading to students when his chief of staff came over and just told him a second plane hit the Twin Towers. America is under attack. And the president sat there and continued what he was doing until he could gather his thoughts and not cause a panic in the class. What's insane about what unfolded after is that we, as kids, knew almost as much as the president did about the attacks. There was massive confusion in the administration, and they resorted to watching the news to get information. Their communication systems weren't working properly, and many key people were out of the country. This is remarkable because there was an entire system built during the Cold War as part of something called Continuity of Government Planning, or COG, COG, specifically to serve the United States in a crisis like 9-11. The government spent billions of dollars on this plan, and it was all meant to ensure that key important individuals like the president, vice president, and cabinet members could communicate and ensure that the government would continue to run in the event of a catastrophic attack. It just didn't work as planned. Hello, this is the Nuclear Warriors podcast. I'm Alton Liu. And I'm Tammy Wien. Today on the show, we talk about the continuity of government plans, how the federal government is supposed to survive, and how 9-11 tested those nuclear survival plans, even if it wasn't a nuclear attack. The Nuclear Warriors podcast is supported by the Reinventing Civil Defense Project and funded by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of the supporting organizations. Questions about the podcast or the Reinventing Civil Defense Project can be directed to Elton at NuclearWarriors.com. All right. All right. Energy. Energy. Are you ready? Ah, yeah. Ah. Let's do this. All right. We're going to talk about not as tragic things, but... <clears throat> so in the United States government, the only person who can decide to launch a nuclear strike is the president. And, you know, there are other procedures that go into carrying out those orders, but the president is the only one with the authority to launch. After World War II, President Truman and Eisenhower were faced with a problem. 
In the face of complete and utter nuclear annihilation from the Soviet Union, how do we ensure that there is someone alive that can say, hey, let's launch our nukes back at them? It was out of this problem that the continuity of government plan became a thing. Yeah, continuity of government is a whole series of plans that have grown up since the dawn of the nuclear age and Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower's administration that uh, imagine and plan how the U.S. government would respond to uh, a nuclear strike. And it's all of the strange things and plans and procedures and operations that would come into place in both the minutes before uh, a nuclear strike hit and then the hours, days, months, and even years afterwards as the country tries to uh, stabilize and rebuild. That is Garrett Graff, director of the Aspen Institute's Cybersecurity Division, contributing editor to Wired, and an author who wrote a book called Raven Rock that covers every aspect of these COG plans. And the goal of it is to ensure two things, really. One, that there is someone left in charge somewhere in the United States who can launch a retaliatory nuclear strike. And second, that there is a government of some capability that can set out and do the rebuilding process. The continuity of government planning was an elaborate way to ensure that at the end of a catastrophic attack or war, there was someone somewhere in the United States who could claim leadership, launch nuclear weapons, and rebuild America. There are the actual physical parts, like the secure bunkers where government officials would run, a network of planes and ships to evacuate people, and huge communication infrastructure that was built by AT&T to ensure proper communication. Raven Rock, which is the backup Pentagon bunker in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, uh, Mount Weather uh, in Berryville, Virginia, which is the backup uh, executive branch or the, where the president would go. And, and these bunkers, uh, th their scale is really hard for people to imagine. They are small cities with freestanding buildings, multi-story buildings built inside of hollowed out mountains. So these are capable of supporting several thousand people inside the mountain for weeks or even a month at a time. Beyond the, the underground bunkers, we had two special Navy ships, the USS Wright and the USS Northampton, through the 1960s and 1970s, where the president could have fled. They were known as the floating White Houses, uh, these secret ships off the coast of the Atlantic uh, or off the Atlantic coast where uh, the president could run nuclear war from uh, sea. And then this whole fleet of airplanes, airborne command posts, known as the uh, Nightwatch planes, the codename Nightwatch, uh, that, that are today these converted 747s, uh, four of them, that are always on standby alert to ensure that the president is able to escape and run nuclear war from the skies for up to three days at a time. To explain the scale of planning is, is really difficult, just the depth and the scope of it all. Each agency had some sort of designated imagined task, like the post office was supposed to register the dead and find out who was still alive. The IRS planned how to collect taxes after the apocalypse. 
And the park services were going to run the refugee camps because the assumption was that nuclear weapons wouldn't hit the national parks. And then you have the huge line of presidential successors that was created. Everyone knows that, at this time, Mike Pence is in line for the presidency. But the decisions that went into presidential succession are a lot deeper than just a list. What most people don't understand is all of the government's plans are not geared towards protecting the president. They're geared towards protecting the presidency. And that's a subtle but important difference. Each of the cabinet agencies also has its own line of succession that can be, you know, 10, 15, 20 people long. And so when we think about the office of the presidency and the cabinet, it's not just, you know, the 25 or so people that, that you think of. It's actually a much larger contingent, you know, 200, 300 people who would step into those roles in the event that something happened. And, it, and everything is geared towards ensuring that there is someone left alive who can step into the role of the presidency and the role of the cabinet secretaries and keep government running smoothly. It's interesting because even the list extends further to people outside of Washington. Uh, Like the top-ranking officials outside of D.C. is the district attorney of North Texas, Erin Neely Cox, as of September 1st. What is she, like 300th in line to presidency? Like, what is the, do you know the number? (laughs) I don't know the actual number. I think it's, it might be around 300, actually. Something to, uh-huh. something for her resume. Aaron, you're almost there. <laughs> but, you know, there are other top officials that include the director of the Savannah River Operations and the U.S. ambassador to North Korea. And these are the people who are the top ranking officials outside of D.C. Basically, it means that these people would probably become president if all the government officials in Washington tragically died. We're coming back to 9-11, which is the only time in history that these plans were ever actually activated. And this was multi-billion of dollars in investments, decades of planning, and none of them worked out the way they were supposed to. I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think that the people who lived through 9-11 w- would agree, which is that they were surprised by how poorly many of these systems actually worked on 9-11. And... Uh, that the president for much of the day was largely cut off from decision making. Um, you know, he was put aboard Air Force One and, uh, uh, you know, took to the skies that day, uh, as we all remember. The White House and the general government was in chaos. We'll try and give a brief timeline of what was happening. At 8.46 a.m., the first plane hit the North Tower. At 9.03 a.m., the second plane slammed into the South Tower and a report came out that a plane was flying back quickly towards the Capitol. And then at 9.30 a.m., about half an hour later, Vice President Dick Cheney was evacuated to the White House bunker, where he was prepared to operate the continuity of government procedures. And a few minutes after that, a plane hit the Pentagon. Now, Dick Cheney has access to the most information, which wasn't much. But high-ranking officials across the government had no idea what was going on. They were evacuating, but most people didn't know where to go. 
Adding to the confusion, the National Emergency Airborne Command also sent out a plane, just following normal crisis protocol. But the pilot was never given instructions on what to do, so he ended up just flying around D.C. But apparently some news crews saw this plane and assumed that it was another attack. And this added to the general confusion. And remember that this is all happening within the span of like one hour. Around 10 a.m., the Speaker of the House, Dennis Hastert, was evacuated and trying to contact the Vice President. But his secure phone line wasn't properly connecting. The fourth in line to the presidency, Senator Byrd, evacuated outside the Capitol. But he didn't know where to go. He had no directions. So he ended up just going home. There was a lot more general confusion and disruption. There were three reports of other planes flying towards the Capitol. Reports came in of an explosion at the Lincoln Memorial. There was a rumor that a plane was heading towards the president's ranch in Texas. CNN even reported a car bomb went off at the State Department. And United States airspace was ordered grounded twice in 15 minutes by different people. And this is all happening within the span of two hours. You know, you have incorrect reports, rumors stated as facts, facts stated as rumors, and failing communication systems that prevented clearing up any of these issues. And really, none of these systems worked as well as uh, or as thoroughly as we would want. I mean, the the president uh, couldn't even get uh, TV aboard Air Force One that day, uh, or satellite TV at least. So they were really only watching local news on the equivalent of bunny ears antennas when they flew over specific towns. And and so for most of the day, the president of the United States was actually less informed about what was happening uh, as 9-11 unfolded than your average viewer sitting at home watching CNN. And that that really was true across most of the government. I mean, the government really struggled with communications. It really struggled to figure out where and who was in charge when. It really exposed, I think, how weak these continuity systems actually were, even after decades of planning and efforts. And so the Bush administration put a tremendous amount of effort into upgrading those communication systems, upgrading the facilities, and, and, and really making a much bigger effort to, to try to establish a, a system that was more resilient than the one that we had on 9-11. What makes the failure even more provocative is that there was no human in history better prepared to command on 9-11 than Dick Cheney. Cheney's entire career, from Reagan to defense secretary to vice president, had taken him through all these crisis management and cog operations, and the thing still fell apart. Yeah, and this brings up the human element in all of this doomsday planning. You know, there are procedures and protocols that are meant to ensure some survivability of the U.S. government. But humans are required to carry those out. You know, just like Bush deciding to follow procedures. You see in that decision one of the central tensions of continuity planning, which is president did exactly the thing that he should have done as commander-in-chief. Um, you know, he listened to the Air Force, he listened to the Secret Service, he was put aboard Air Force One and sent into the skies until they were uh, sure that it was safe for him to come back to Washington at the end of the day. 
but that was exactly not what the country wanted him to do. Like we wanted, uh, you know, strong leadership that day. And what we got was Rudy Giuliani, you know, bravely marching down to ground zero and, you know, being a, a leader on that day. And President Bush was actually very strongly criticized by news anchors like Peter Jennings for for disappearing for the day. But he, that was actually what exactly what he was supposed to be doing. Um, it, it just was not what we as citizens uh, wanted from our president that day. There's a bit of hypocrisy across officials on 9-11. Bush wanted to be on the ground in the White House, but Cheney said to stay in the air where it was safe. Yet what most high-ranking officials did was send their deputies away to those secret bunkers, Raven Rock and Mount Weather. The entire network and procedures of planes, ships, whatever, to transport officials to bunkers and safe zones across the United States didn't work properly because the people they needed to transport didn't want to go. You know, I, I talked about Bush and, uh, you know, what he did on 9-11. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld, I remember, was Secretary of Defense at the time. He, when the Pentagon was attacked, uh, he did this incredibly brave thing and actually went to the scene of the crash and tried to help rescue people from the rubble. Uh, and it was this incredibly brave, great decision by him uh, that really endeared him forever, really, to the Pentagon. Uh, at the same time, he's one of the most experienced people in the entire U.S. government on continuity planning. I mean, he was a former White House chief of staff, former defense secretary himself, former congressman when he used to participate in some of these plans during the Cold War or uh, during the Reagan years. He knows this cog world better than almost anyone. And he still, on 9-11, made the absolute wrong decision as secretary of defense. You know, it, in the one hour that the U.S. government, the U.S. Uh, homeland was under attack, uh, Donald Rumsfeld was not being whisked away by helicopter from the Pentagon to Raven Rock. Uh, he was helping rescue people from the rubble, which was a, a wonderful thing for him to do as a human, a wonderful thing for him to do as the leader. And precisely the wrong thing for him to do for effectively his constitutional responsibilities as defense secretary. Now, these systems were created during a time when an all-out nuclear war was a real possibility. It's, it's not really that way anymore. And so the government's strategy has largely changed since 9-11 and since other advancements in the world. The experience of 9-11 led to massive new investments into these continuity of government systems, most of which are secret, but they're generally improvements in communication. It's easy to forget, but pagers were the dominant mode of communication back then. Beyond those improvements, the COG plans have changed to reflect the fact that all-out nuclear war is probably not going to happen. A lot of the plans today are not necessarily, you know, they are general contingency plans. They're not solely focused on a nuclear threat. So in a modern context, you know, they are very focused also on ensuring the government is able to survive uh, a, a chemical attack, a biological attack, or a cyber attack. Um, you know, basically anything that would 
knock out or incapacitate a chunk of the government or a chunk of a large urban city, you know, the government needs to be prepared to respond to that. But what has really remained the same about these plans is how it really gets into the sort of, well, the idea of America. And I think you get really different answers if you ask people that question, especially in today's political climate. That's part of what I think makes these plans so interesting is that when you begin to get into this conversation of how you preserve government, uh, how, how you preserve America, that begins to be a pretty existential question pretty quickly. You know, if you're preserving America, what is America? You know, is it the president? Is it the three branches of government? It could also be ideals, like shared beliefs about the world, like democracy or liberty and freedom. And it's a question of how do you preserve those ideals in the event that the government or huge parts of America are actually destroyed? And so one of the things that the government did through the Cold War, and there are versions of these plans that still exist today, is think about what the historical totems are that are worth preserving, the things that sort of generation to generation link us together as Americans. And so there was a whole secret set of plans during the Cold War about how to evacuate the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence from the National Archives. There was this, you know, the Library of Congress had a plan uh, and a ranked order of its artifacts so that it knew that it would evacuate Lincoln's Gettysburg Address before it evacuated George Washington's military commission. And that there was even a plan through much of the Cold War for specially trained uh, team of park rangers to evacuate the Liberty Bell from Philadelphia in the event of a surprise nuclear attack on the city. So, you know, there was a lot of thought given to what are the things that after an attack we would want to be able to point to, to be able to say, see, this is still America. What is America? It's a compelling question, and we'd love to hear your opinions. If America were to get attacked, what key American things would you want to save? You can email us at alton at nuclearwarriors.com or go to our website either way. We know that there wasn't as much nuclear talk in this episode, but we enjoyed going down this rabbit hole and just wanted to share with you. If you enjoyed this tangentially related nuclear stuff, let us know and we can expand out a bit more often. Thanks everyone for listening. Talk to you next time.